I want to start off by just thanking Pastor Evan. You know, I am the newest member of the staff. Uh, my wife and I, I guess, are tied for the newest member of staff, but I'm the, the one up here. So I want to thank you, Pastor Evan, for entrusting me to preach on a passage, the first five words of which are wives submit to your husbands. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, we've been in Colossians now for four weeks, and this is the final uh, in this short series that we've been working through. Next week, Casey Huckle will be here. He's going to preach on Psalm 23, and then on June 5th, in two weeks, we're going to begin a series in the book of Judges, which will take us through the summer. So if you recall the, uh, the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul walks us through all of this wonderful reality of what it means to uh, be in Christ. What, what are the privileges, what are the benefits that we get to enjoy as, as people who are in Christ? And uh, if you want a reminder of that, we don't have time to, to go through all of the highlights, but there is a handout on the lectern which is right by the door that you're going uh, to go out of when you leave the sanctuary today. Uh, there's a list of 15 statements that Paul makes in Colossians, primarily in chapters 1 and 2, about the benefits of being in Christ and united with Christ. And it, I encourage you to pick that up and look at it and maybe even use it as a way to give thanks to the Lord uh, for who you are in Christ. So last week, Pastor Evan preached on Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17, and that was the beginning of a, a turn in the direction of Paul's letter, because in the first two chapters, we get all of these statements about the benefits of, who, of, of, of what we experience as being united to Christ. Who are we now that Christ has died and united us to him in his death and in his, in, yeah, I can't talk, and in his resurrection? But starting in chapter 3, and moving on to chapter 4, we see all of the practical application of those spiritual realities. He, he tells us how to live out the new life that we have in Christ. He tells us what it looks like to be gradually transformed into someone who has increasingly different desires uh, and increasingly acts and thinks like Jesus Christ himself. So last week, Pastor Evan talked about the fact that as we grow in our relationship with Christ, our desires change, and this week, we're going to look at how being in Christ can radically transform our relationships with others. And just a caveat as we move forward, the, the title of the, the sermon today is Transformed Relationships. It's not as though uh, with being in Christ that suddenly a miracle happens and all of your relationships are different. The, the process of these relationships being transformed is part of the process of sanctification. And sanctification is just a, a theological word that means that we are gradually being renewed from the inside out. And as our hearts are renewed, that filters through to the things that are on the outside. And gradually, the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we desire, the way that we talk, the way that we love, those are all gradually transformed, and we become more and more like Jesus himself. And so when we talk about transformed relationships, we're not talking about an overnight change. We're talking about a progressive change over the course of your life. And so this is something that uh, I encourage you to see in that, that very gradual uh, light. 
So Paul gives us instruction in three uh, different groups to three different groups of people. Uh, And so we're going to look at this passage using those same categories. We're going to look at transformed relationships between wives and husbands, between parents and children, and between workers and supervisors. So I want to mention three last things before we dive in to the passage. And I mentioned these before we look at the text because uh, there are some very easy traps that I want to help you avoid falling into. I don't want them to be stumbling blocks for, for any of you. So first, the instructions in today's passage are instructions that you can't consistently carry out. Uh, in your own strength. You can't be the kind of person described in today's text with any motivation other than being deeply rooted and grounded and submitted to Christ. What we uh, read about today are gracious invitations to live out transformed relationships only as we are united to the Lord and draw all of our identity, all of our wisdom, all of our patience, and all of our hope from him. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3.15, it's only with the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts that you and I can even attempt to live this way. That's the first thing. Second, I don't think anyone would take issue, at least not any adult uh, who's here, with what Paul says about children and parents in verses 20 and 21. But, and I just have to name this, there may be some tension for you in what Paul says about husbands and wives, and what he says about bondservants and masters, or, or what we're equating that to uh, employees and uh, supervisors. It may be easy to critique Paul as an unmarried man who is probably never a bondservant to anyone, and to think that he has no right to talk about these kinds of relationships. Or it might be tempting to judge Paul as having a very low view of women and to dismiss what he says about women as being misogynistic. Or you might dismiss these kinds of instructions in Scripture as being rooted in an ancient culture and therefore out of step today. So there isn't time to address all of these concerns at length. But what I do is I ask you to pray for an open mind and an open heart to listen. If we are intellectually honest, we have to admit that Scripture was written by sinful, imperfect people who lived a very different culture than ours today. And yet, this same Scripture that was written by sinful, imperfect people was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so it is perfect. It is infallible. As a matter of fact, the Liberty Communion of Churches has included uh, this in our statement of faith. And uh, it's a bit of a long passage. You'll see it up on the the screens. This is what the Liberty Communion of Church's Statement of Faith says about what we believe about Scripture. It says, The Bible is the verbally inspired Word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error uh, in the original writings, complete in its revelation of His will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. We confess that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively, but we affirm that, enlightened by the Spirit of God, we can know God's revealed truth truly. 
And so what that means is that everything that we read in Scripture is not only true, it's applicable to us today, even though it was written within the context of a specific culture to a specific audience nearly 2,000 years ago. The very words that we read and hear about from Paul today apply to us in our situations. So the third thing to keep in mind is that when Paul speaks of the relationship between bondservants and masters, he isn't talking about uh, American slavery. God condemns the kind of slavery that took place in the United States and still takes place in other parts of the world. The, and I'll, I'll get into this a little later, but the bondservant-master relationship that Paul talks about here is very different, and it is more akin to the kind of relationship that employees have with their employers, and so that's where, how we're going to treat it. So let's dive into the first transformed relationship, wives and husbands. So my wife Susan and I will celebrate our 21st anniversary on Friday, and I married her when she was 11, so... But back when we were engaged, uh, we attended a church in the city, and we had some close relationships with some other couples in the church, many of whom were a few years older than we were. And I remember that after we announced our engagement to some of our friends in the church, several of the married men whom I knew came to me with some version of this, this like, tired old trope. And they said, you'd, you know, you'd better live it up now because once you're married... What's the rest of it? Your life is over, right? <laughs> um, so, why do we ridicule something so beautiful as the covenant relationship between a man and his wife? And I think it's probably because the relationships between husbands and wives are so broken, so fractured by sin. We don't love one another the way that we were meant to. And as a matter of fact, the marriage relationship was fractured by sin in the earliest chapters of the Bible. Just 1,604 words into the Bible, and I did count them. In Gen That's why I didn't finish the sermon until last night. In Genesis 3-7, we read that the first husband and the first wife, Adam and Eve, lose the perfect intimacy and trust that they had with each other from the beginning. And then just a few verses later in Genesis 3.16, God tells Adam and Eve about one of the enduring consequences that their sin would have on their marriage and every marriage to follow. Uh, it's up on the screen right now. He says that your desire, and he's, he's speaking here to Eve, uh, he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And... I have to say that that is not a pronouncement by God of a curse on human marriage. That is uh, a statement by God of the consequences of sin on human marriage. Because uh, what he's saying here is, um, this is, this is the fruit of the seeds that you've sown. What God says here to Adam and Eve is that, Whereas before the fall into sin, they had perfect alignment of thought and desire, now marriage would have an adversarial component. What God says essentially is to Eve, you're going to want one thing, 
but your husband is going to resist you having it. That certainly sounds like a recipe for a happy marriage, doesn't it? Two people constantly at odds with each other. It's been the plot of uh, half of American sitcoms over the last 60 or 70 years. And within a climate of competing personal agendas, the, the critical intangibles of marriage, covenant love, devotion, trust, intimacy, tenderness, they're, they're all impossible to nurture. We all, we all desire them, and yet they seem unattainable. Tim Keller is a pastor and teacher in New York City, and he and his wife wrote a book several years ago entitled The Meaning of Marriage. And it's such a good book. Uh, it's actually one of the best books that I've, I've read on uh, what marriage is meant to be uh, and how to help you, whether you're married or looking to be married, uh, bring your marriage to that point, uh, that there are a few copies uh, on the lectern by the back door, and if you would like to pick one up, uh, please take one with you today as uh, a gift from Liberty Church. But according to the Kellers, the foundation of covenant marriage has to be that a husband and a wife become best friends with each other. And why is that important? Why, why do they need to be best friends? It's, it's because best friends trust each other. Best friends bear one another's burdens. They, they love one another during difficult times, and they are as least as much committed to the other person as they are to themselves, if not more so. A good friend will not demand the other person bend to his or her own wishes. A good best friend serves the other person willingly and joyfully because what concerns them is uh, their friend's flourishing, their, their friend's uh, growth and uh, enjoyment of life. And I think that that's what Paul is getting at here, that husbands and wives would willingly surrender their own agendas, whatever those agendas might be, in order that love for the other would be what defines marriage. And so what that means for us practically as, as human beings living in this 21st century world is that we, we give up willingly our agendas for what this marriage will look like, um, how this marriage will make me happy, how this marriage compares to other marriages, how this marriage isn't like uh, my parents' marriage, how much money we have in the bank, how many kids we have, how many, uh, you know, how perfect the lawn looks, what kind of vacation we go on, how much I enjoy our physical relationship. Those are the agendas that we have to put aside. They're not necessarily bad things to want. But what Paul is saying here, and, and what really what we see woven throughout Scripture, uh, is that God calls husbands and wives to primarily lay down their lives and serve one another. So where do we see this kind of relationship at work elsewhere in the Bible? Well, it's at work among the members of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They each willingly submit themselves to others. They, they listen to the others, and they serve the other members of the Trinity. And that depth of love is what God wants husbands and wives to enjoy in their marriage. 
And so Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. The, the context of the verb submit here in verse 18 is an unusual one, and it appears just a few times in Scripture, all in letters written by either Paul or Peter. It's a paranetic use, meaning that Paul is deeply encouraging or, or exhorting wives to willingly submit to their husbands, not out of obligation, and not because their husbands are always right, because we're not. But Paul deeply encourages wives to submit because in putting aside their own agendas, they model the perfect, faithful love, patience, and trust that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share with one another. And this is the kind of love that we were redeemed to reflect into one another's lives. But just like every other kind of human relationship, marriages are utterly broken. And I, I need to say here that what Paul is saying is not a blanket call for wives to submit to their husbands in all situations at all times. One instance uh, of, of not submitting uh, to a husband is um, when a husband wants his wife to ignore sin or to engage in sin. And this includes abusive situations. And I have to say that it is never okay for a husband to be emotionally, physically, or sexually threatening or abusive to his wife or to his children. And there are other times when it might be unwise for a wife to submit to her husband. I, I can't go into all of those possible scenarios this morning, but if this is a situation that impacts you personally, if, if you are uh, experiencing some of those things in your marriage, I encourage you to come to me to come to Pastor Evan, to come to Pastor Kyle, or one of the elders or, or deacons, because we want to help you. We, we want to help you, first of all, be safe. We want to see, we want to help you rather see Christ at work uh, in whatever is going on in your marriage, and we want to help you uh, in whatever ways we can. What about the call to husbands, to, to love your wives and not be harsh with them? Well, Husbands loving their wives is the flip side of the wife submitting to, to her husband's authority. Because in a parallel passage, Paul fleshes out what it really means for a husband to love his wife. He says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And husbands, the call for us here is to set aside our agendas, our demands, and to serve our wives to the extent that Christ loved the church. And that means giving up our own lives and not holding anything back. That means not demanding anything, not being selfish, not hiding in any way from our wives, but being a willing and joyful partner in, and best friend in the marriage relationship. And we do it all because the power of God is at work within us, transforming us into men who increasingly think, act, and love like Christ. So that's the first transformed relationship. The second is children and parents. So there's a, a Christian counselor and teacher uh, uh, named Paul Tripp who wrote about a situation with one of his sons, Ethan. And Ethan was a toddler at the time, and Paul had just warned him to not touch an electric socket in the wall. And I don't know if any of you who 
our parents or grandparents or have, have parents uh, have ever experienced this, but you know, when you tell a kid to not do something, that's the only thing they want to do. And so, Paul has just uh, said, don't touch the electric socket to Ethan, and Paul's reading a book, and he glances up, and he sees Ethan in the doorway, standing in the doorway, looking at Paul. And then Paul looks back down at his book, and after a moment, he looks up, and he sees Ethan kind of creeping along the wall, looking at Paul, heading toward the electric socket. And then Paul looks down at his book, and immediately looks back up, and he sees Ethan over there ready to put his hands on the socket. And all the while, he's just staring at Paul. Ethan just couldn't resist the one thing that his father told him not to touch. And one reason that Paul gives the exhortation for children to obey their parents and everything is because generally, parents know more about how to wisely navigate the world than their children do. But that's not the only reason for this instruction. Paul gives the reason at the end of verse 20 because a child submitting to a parent's instruction is pleasing to the Lord. Someone's applauding. (laughs) And why is that? I, I do think that God enjoys seeing children grow up to become wise adults. But obedience is necessary not only when it makes sense, like learning how to avoid electrocution. Obedience is necessary all of the time, even when the rules or instructions our parents give doesn't make sense, or or they don't jive with our own agendas for life. A a parent has both a 360-degree perspective on life that a child lacks, and the love and commitment to that child to always desire the long-term best for them. So here's the thing. Children who avoid electrocution and survive to adulthood usually develop wisdom that matches or exceeds that of their parents, and and they don't need the kind of constant boundary setting that their earthly parents once provided. But no matter how old we become, we never stop being children of God, and none of us is capable of developing the kind of 360-degree perspective that God has on us. And so why I think it's pleasing to God that children obey their parents in everything is because children and parents are all called to obey God in everything, even when it doesn't make sense, when it isn't convenient, or when it doesn't jive with our own agendas. And I don't know about any of you, but I don't always want to do that. I don't always want to obey God. Obeying God all the time means that there's no wiggle room for me to play around with sin. Obeying God in everything means that I can't pretend that I'm really God when it suits me because I want my own way. And if you, like me, struggle with your motivation to obey God all the time, we can look to the Son of God for both an example and for help to obey. This is up on the screen. Paul tells us of Jesus In Philippians 2, that he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even though it meant his life, Jesus, the Son of God, was obedient to his Father. 
And earthly fathers, and I think we can extend this to mothers as well, in verse 21, are commanded not to provoke our, uh, their children lest they become discouraged. And I think what Paul's getting at here is that it's so easy to criticize our children when they refuse to obey or even when they just make a simple mistake. When that disobedience or, or lack of conformity to our standards becomes a pattern, we can far too easily become our children's nags and critics when we should be their greatest empowerers. Our words to our children do shape their young hearts. I know that Susan and I have had to apologize to our daughter many times for uh, words spoken in anger over the years. Is there anything that the Lord would be looking for you to apologize to your children for? Or is he challenging you to submit your frustration and your tendency to anger about your children to him? Let's look at the third transformed relationship, workers and supervisors. As I mentioned earlier, the, the relationship of what are called bond servants and their masters in this passage is very different from the kind of slavery that has taken place in our national history. Bond servants are men and women, but mostly men, who were in the employ of someone else, a, a master, because they were paying off a debt to him. And, and these debts were incurred in any number of ways. They didn't have the kind of banking system or credit system 2,000 years ago that we have today. Uh, and uh, people who didn't have any money uh, would often wind up becoming a bond servant until money that they were forced to borrow from someone else was paid off. And that's the, the bond, part of bond servant, a debt that needed to be repaid in order for the time to, of service to come to an end. Bond servants would eventually be freed from their obligation to their masters. They had rights, they could have families, they could engage in activities outside the master's home if they wished. And something that's important to note is the bond servants and masters addressed in this letter were, in fact, part of the same church. So while they were in an economic hierarchy, uh, they were still brothers and sisters of equal standing and equal dignity uh, with one another in the church. So it's not a perfect analogy, but the relationship between bond servants and their masters is in many ways similar to the relationship of most modern employees and their bosses. And as we close, let's look briefly at two things Paul says about the relationship between employees and their employers. First, he tells the bond servants, the employees, to not do their work half-heartedly because doing the work is an economic necessity. When he says not to do their work by way of eye service as people-pleasers, what he essentially says is that employer, employees rather, shouldn't just look on the outside like they're doing a good job. They should actually do a good job because Paul says, in doing so, they're actually serving Christ. And here's why. We believe that God is sovereign over all things in the world, and he's sovereign over all of the, the little details of our individual lives, including where we work. And so even if the Lord has sovereignly placed us in a position where we feel unimportant, or if we do work that we feel is menial, for as long as we're there, we should do our absolute best because the Lord himself has placed us there for that season. 
But you know, it's also a good witness to the employer to see employees doing unpleasant or seemingly unimportant work well. Because that's a witness to them that just as Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, they also have a master in heaven and are called to account for how they do the work that the Lord has entrusted to them. So that's the first thing. Here's the second. The Lord is watching how we act. Paul says in verse 24 that the Lord will grant a reward for obedience, but in verse 25, wrongdoers will, will suffer for the wrong that they've done. And there's a lot to dissect here, but one thing that we can take away from this is that the Lord is aware of how hard it is to obey under adverse conditions. And in Christ, he offers the invitation to us to rest in Christ and to be obedient even when it's difficult. And that's really a way that we can summarize each of the exhortations to wives and husbands, to children and parents, and to employees and employers, that obedience is rarely easy, but it is good. And submitting to the people whom the Lord has put in authority over us brings blessing. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned because they wanted to exert their own authority over God's authority. Their rebellion set in motion a series of consequences that have literally turned God's creation upside down. But Jesus Christ came and died on the cross in order to destroy the power of sin and all of the corruption it brings to all of creation, including our relationships. And here in Colossians, we see a gracious invitation for God, from God rather, for us to participate in all things being made right, one one little piece at a time, as we use the power that is ours only in Christ Jesus to put aside our own agendas and to love and serve God and others instead of ourselves. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we acknowledge that it is difficult to submit. Lord, we want what we want when we want it. And Lord, to defer that pleasure, to uh, say that someone else's agenda is more important than our own, to willingly give up good things that we desire in order that someone else would experience the good things that they desire, that's, that's hard. And we acknowledge that we, we bristle and, and grate against that. So Lord, we pray that as your people who, uh, in whom you have placed your spirit, that we would take hold of the power that is ours in Christ Jesus and that we would choose to serve one another in love because Christ did not withhold even his own body, even his own life when he served us. And so, Lord, I, I pray that the, the life, the new life that we have in Christ would grow in us, and I pray that the hope, uh, not only for things being better in this world, but as we look uh, toward your kingdom, Lord, I pray that those things would motivate us uh, to love you and to love others well. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.